Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Greetings, artists and art lovers. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the rise of the creative class. We talk to artists, designers, makers, and creators driving contemporary culture around the world. I'm your host, Sourdough, and today I'm joined by a renowned intellectual property attorney, former advisor-in-chief to DeviantArt, recent speaker at our Not Real Art Conference for Creators, father, husband, and talented photographer specializing in street photography, the one and only Joshua Waddles. Hey, Josh. Hey, how are you, Scott? So what's street photography? Well, you know, that's a very complicated question because there's no consensus among street photographers. I mean, I once submitted a picture on DeviantArt to the street photography category, and one of the sort of volunteer monitors sent back a note and told me it wasn't street photography because it wasn't a street. And, um, <laughs> and you said, wait a minute, I'm the advisor in chief. <laughs> Consider your audience. Well, uh, you know, I... It's just that people have different views of it. I mean, you know, really the sort of god of the genre is Ali Cartier-Bresson. And, you know, he shot, you know, with a Leica, a small Leica. Uh, That's when sort of street photography, you know, really came into its own when small portable cameras, you know, producing relatively good pictures. What uh, years uh, was he You're talking about the 30s. Yeah, okay. And, you know, just pre-war and then, of course, with World War II and thereafter, it became a big thing. And then, you know, they're just like all of these amazing street photographers. And and it's, you know, I view it, I view my purpose with street photography more to be a sort of cultural record. It's certainly not my favorite uh, work as a photographer. I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as a street photographer. I think of myself as a photographer who's doing street photography for a while. Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, if you were to ask me what are my best photographs, I don't think a single one would technically be street photography. But this is your street photography period. And the art historians 100 years from now will look back on your on this period of your practice and call this your street art period. Right. So yeah. many art historians will be yeah. arguing over this period. Yes. And whether it was a deflection from my true purpose and mission. What is your true purpose and mission? If you knew <laughs> or and could tell me, I would be deeply appreciative. <laughs> well, by the end of the podcast, I will reveal your true purpose. Yeah, it's like Karnak. Oh, great. We've been interrupted by by a broadcast here. (laughs) Pardon me, what's going on here? Hold on. Uh, That was interesting. Uh, yeah, so if, if apparently you pick that up on the mic, it was the Spanish version <laughs> of going crazy yeah, with David Lee Roth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I guess that police song Ghost in the Machine uh, is an appropriate uh, song to cue in here because uh, that was very weird. Well, I thought it might be Alexa just sort of jumping in or yeah. Siri jumping in. You know, do you do you use Alexa? Do you use Siri? Do you use no, these I, home no, speakers? I, no, I would not invite the devil into my house. Yeah, I feel yeah. the same way. I feel the same way. I mean, they really do listen in. And, uh, you know, even though there's a benign value to them listening in, in terms of understanding and trying to predict what it is you want or ask for, 
you know, it still becomes rich data and that rich data is persistent somewhere and it is used uh, by others. Is there any hope uh, for real privacy anymore? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting, this notion of privacy. I think a lot about it. And at DeviantArt, I was part of uh, implementation of the GDPR, which is the new European privacy policy standards, which are driving most social networks insane and are very likely designed to simply make them inoperable in Europe, at least. Um, you know, I think it's a sort of a, an act of jealousy on their part since all of the social networks are largely American-based companies. If it were their own, you know, European companies, I don't think they would behave quite the same way in their legislature. But, you know, putting that to one side, you know, the notion of expectation of privacy is relatively new in world culture, period. In some cultures, doesn't really connect. <laughs> you know, if you're living in a culture where everybody's living on top of each other, where multi-generations of a family are all in a single room, you know, privacy is not something that you really have an expectation of having in any significant way. If instead, you know, you uh, have the ability to be ensconced in a wonderful air-conditioned home in Encino uh, with your own private- I know nothing about that. Yeah, with your own private office uh, and, uh, you know, your family in a separate wing, uh, your expectation of privacy could be considerable. So- you know, well, but there are different kinds of privacy too, right? I mean, there's the the personal privacy that a person might have relative to their family member or their neighbor or their you know direct community, but then there's you know the privacy that comes from say Big Brother and you know or corporate America, you know listening in or or having access to our data. So you know, differentiate for me that you know these different kinds of privacies and what we can reasonably well, expect. I, mean, I can give you an example sure. in, in Germany now. I believe also potentially in France, but certainly in Germany, street photography is essentially outlawed. No kidding. Uh, because you are not permitted to take a photograph of an individual, even in public, without their permission. Well, the whole notion of street photography for many people in the genre is to catch people unawares. Candid, you know, yeah. Candid, doing what they're doing. And the notion of going up to them before or after to ask permission is just sort of like, you know, are you joking? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, I mean, that's obviously an extreme. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just really don't think that the conversation around privacy is really one that is worldwide. And I don't, I think when you have that conversation now, you have to balance it against social utility. I mean, by way of example, I used to be able to when I was younger, I'm quite an old man, as you know, you can probably tell from- Like 100, 105, 106? At least, you know, <laughs> as a kid, I could go walk the streets of New York City and be anonymous, in essence. That's a little bit different than privacy, because while I was walking those streets in New York, anybody could see me, anyone could take my picture. Uh, for some reason, my mother always heard back where I'd been. Uh, even in a city as big as New York. And you were infamous. And, uh, but I had this sense of privacy coming from anonymity. Today yes. in New York City, for good and valid and reasonable reasons, there are probably now thousands of cameras 
fixed on public streets. Yep. All in the name of security. Well, yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and sort of makes sense, sort of not makes sense, but kind of makes sense when you go to the movies and, you know, they're trying to save a, a, a solve a case, particularly British TV series where they're trying to solve any kind of uh, police action. They call, you know, they call up these huge banks of TV screens in the police offices, you know, and they're tracking people as they walk all around. This just happened with Smollett in Chicago, uh, you know, where the police are pulling footage from all over the place trying yep. to track him. Yep. Apparently, there's a blind spot somewhere near the subway that he went to. And I know it well, that it, blind spot. Yeah, everybody does. Yeah, well, of course, that's where you go to do all kinds do of deals. Things. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, the whole point is, is it's called a blind spot. It's not, you know, in other words, the normative is, well, where's the footage of the people walking through the street at four o'clock in the morning? Right. Right. Oops, there's a blind spot. Well, that's wrong in some way, you know. <laughs> so what's your expectation of privacy under those circumstances? And what you know, so I think there's a difference between privacy and anonymity. I think that's a sort of an interesting construct. I haven't completely worked it through. Uh, certainly on DeviantArt, you could be anonymous. Yeah. And I've had people approach me, you know, who were members of DeviantArt with, you know, deeply, deeply emotional stories about how the ability for them to be anonymous permitted them to develop a alternative persona that was their genuine persona while they were living a life that didn't permit them to be that way. And this would be like a photographer in Turkey who's gay. And were they to come out as gay in Turkey in an identifiable way, they would be beaten and hurt. I mean, very badly. Or this woman who was, uh, you know, LGBTQ question mark uh, as, a, as a kid growing up in a Mormon family. And by the way, for our listeners sake, the question mark wasn't a joke. Like it is no, now. No. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. It is a thing. Yes. Um, you know, she, I mean, she came up to me at an event where I uh, was participating and, you know, just sort of bent my ear for half an hour about her life story and how important and meaningful DeviantArt had been to her in uh, being able to create an identity, find her own identity, identify what her identity should be all in the context of being in a Mormon family with multiple children, you know, father and mother who were very observant and where they moved every year for some Mormon missionary purpose, you know, around, you know, the Utah, Idaho, you know, sort of triangle of Mormonism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, the Mormon triangle. And she had no way out, you know, other than being able to participate in this environment. And she was an artist and she enjoyed, you know, drawing and and that kind of activity. So that put her on DeviantArt rather than another platform. She's still going to hell, by the way. Well, no. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, she, she uh, when I met her, she w had just uh, finished a PhD program and, you know, she did have purple hair, but she was, you know. Yeah, you're right. Um, no, no PhDs in hell. You're right. Uh, but, you know, but so I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, there's a difference between privacy and anonymity. I think once you go anonymous, your expectation of privacy is obviously very, yeah. very high. Yeah. And to the extent that these services provide anonymity. Uh, and then there's, you know, this big argument over anonymity and whether you should be permitted to be anonymous, at which point, you know, you got to say to Banksy, you know, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to be an artist unless you show us who you really are. You know, this game of cat and mouse is not permitted. We're not going to look at your work. Or Samo, I mean, Basquiat used Samo as, a, as an alternative identity. And I'm sorry, you're not allowed to do that. You have to, you know, authentically sign your work. Bullshit. 
I mean, yep. that's never been the case in the arts. And uh, so, you know, outing someone like a Banksy, I think is as bad as outing someone who doesn't want to be outed for their sexuality or other activity. <laughs> the mob knows what to do when you do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do. They're very good at it. No, it is fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I forget the name of the 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 study, but, you know, sort of this classic study that they do every generation and they ask, you know, that generation uh, upon graduation, I guess, of high school or something, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when I was coming up, you know, the answer was always like, number one, astronaut. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Number one, astronaut, maybe number two, president. You know, maybe number three, doctor. You know, that same study a few years ago, the number one answer was famous. You know, American kids wanted to grow up and be famous. You know, fascinating. You know, we're living in this time where suddenly fame is is a aspirational. Is it is more aspirational than ever? Well, there's an irony to concerns over privacy of yes. your data in an environment where increasingly people present themselves to this huge worldwide but population the, yeah and and i mean you know a kardashian in a see-through whatever distributed worldwide instantaneously uh to literally hundreds of millions of people then walking around and asking for privacy i mean uh, you so know. is it generational i mean you know i'm 49 like i really ad- want my privacy and 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 anonymity to the extent that i can have it i'm happy to you know, obviously be out in public, you know, somewhat, but you know, would I give up my, my privacy, my, my privacy well, anonymity for fame? No, I wouldn't. There's a logical explanation for Germany and France having extreme privacy views, mm-hmm. which they've promulgated throughout the EU for the purposes of getting the EU to impose these privacy regulations. And that has to do with the Holocaust. It has to do with World War II. It has to do with uh, East Germany and Stasi and uh, the lack of privacy in those environments and the way in which private information was used to find and hunt down and destroy. And it was. And so to the extent that Amazon has a complete list of every single book I've ever ordered and every you know album I've listened to and every view I've done on Amazon Prime. And to the extent, you know, Donald Trump's kids become president um, and we have a sort of, you know, unending direction in the direction that Mr. Trump is taking our country, uh, that they all of a sudden declare, you know, all of these fake news promulgators, uh, people who read uh, articles in yada yada magazine or who watch CNN for this much time on YouTube, go round them up and get rid of them or don't let them work or, you know, exclude them from government or, you know, whatever game you want to play, that rich data is available to that kind of a regime, you're in trouble. Now, this is the case in China today. So in China, they've established a social index for your behavior. I mean, it's terrifying to people in China. I have students who are Chinese who are subjected to this. My son has classmates at his university, his college, who are subjected to this. And literally, they look at everything you do, and they give you a social index uh, for what it is you've been doing and looking at, uh, reading and saying. And based on that social index, you're either good this week or bad. You, You know, you either have little 
gold stars or little red dots like I used to have in my elementary school. Uh, every week they would add up your red dots or gold stars. And, you know, unfortunately in my case, I never had red, I never had gold stars that exceeded my red dots, but that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother podcast about childhood trauma, uh, without which I wouldn't be the rich mind that I have today. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it takes a few beatings. Any rate, you know, these kids, people in China are subjected to this social index uh, metric, which is based upon rich data, which is available to the Chinese government through the use of interconnected tools, uh, like, you know, the internet and uh, what they buy, um, you know, I wonder, what kind, I wonder um, how that applies to people like Jack Ma, right? Isn't he the founder of Alibaba? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here you have, he's what, China's richest man, right? Yeah. I mean, is he on the social index? Are they watching him closer than anyone else? Like, or is he? Well, I think it's a given that he gets watched closer than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't need a social index for all of the government's eyes to be on those types of individuals yeah. and for them to know them quite well. And I assume they know different than any other elite. I'm sure they all go party together at the same lake and water ski. You know, I mean, they have more intimate knowledge of each other than, you know, simply a computer going out. And Yeah, I've heard, but I've heard that Jack really enjoys bass fishing. I mean, I don't know. She's just crazy about the about the bass fishing. Are there a lot of bass in Chinese lakes, or do they stock them? Well, well yeah, they they think they they uh, they're counterfeit. They flow in the bass. <laughs> that's, that's right. Is it like the singing bass? Because I'm sure those came out of Chinese factories. Oh, I'm sure. Remember the oh, singing bass? Oh my god, bass? hell yeah! I remember yeah, the yeah. singing bass. Yes, yeah. That's I mean, classic. that was a great novelty, <laughs> and um, and I don't think it could have been manufactured anywhere other than China. <laughs> that's right. And maybe we that, didn't have the capability. And maybe that's what got him off onto that. You know, said <laughs> you know, why is he? Maybe he made a ton of money off of the singing bass manufacturing, and then he said to his people, wait a minute, what are these actually for? Why do these people in the United States actually want these things? What, what does it represent? Why is there a fish on a plaque on a wall? What's this all about? At which point somebody went and researched the rich cultural history of American sports fishing and explained this whole thing to him. And he went, oh, that is amazing. I better go to Idaho and learn how to do some fly fishing. And uh, the rest is, you know, Sportsman history. A lifelong, you know, activity for him in waders. <laughs> I'm happy to see that you're wearing your uh, go-to hammer baseball cap. You know, virtually every time we're together, uh, you are wearing your hammer baseball cap. This is like your official uniform. No. So, my secret with the hats yeah. is um, I used to have an Amistad hat. That was one of my favorites. Okay, I plead ignorance. So Amist Amistad hat. What? 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 Well, Amistad is a boat that was full of slaves, where the slaves revolted, landed in the in a colony, in the yeah. United States, and then uh, sought freedom because they were in a non-state, a non-slave uh, state. Mm -hmm. uh, went to the Supreme Court. And the question was, was whether they were even people who could get freedom. Yeah. Uh, or were they just chattel that needed to be recovered by the people who had lost the boat? Right. Right. And so Spielberg made a movie about Amistad. And so, you know, because of where we live, both of us, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of entertainment people around. Yep. If you go to the, um, you know, the, the garage sales, people are, you know, just lay out all kinds of trash. Mm-hmm. 
And um, if you work on a movie, you get a stupid hat with the name of the movie on it. Swag. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I worked on Top Gun. If you, you know, were at a certain level on Top Gun, you got a bomber jacket with Top Gun stuff on it. I mean, it was pretty were swift. Were you at bomber jacket level? It was pretty swift. Wow. I, I got a bomber jacket. And uh, there's a whole story around that. I'm, I'm in the in the uh, presence of greatness. I mean, you know, part of that story involves one of my sons wearing it just to, you know, impress a girl and it worked. Of apparently. course. And of apparently, course. And apparently it worked. And the reason I let him have the jacket is because it doesn't fit me anymore, of course, because um, it was so many years ago. But and my body type has changed. Um, you know, I'm now much more Buddha ish. Uh, <laughs> you seem very wise. It comes. Well, it comes from with the wisdom. You can't have wisdom without weight. At any rate, the hats, uh, I wear through them. And when they're, you know, super sweaty, whatever, terrible, disgusting, you discard them and you get a new one. So this hammer hat is the Hammer Museum. My son bequeathed it to me when he deemed my prior hat to be too disgusting to be worn. Thomas hat. No, it was uh, another hat. Okay, th- but two or three hats. Many, ago. many hats okay, ago. Yeah. <laughs> and and he just said, you know, pops, that hat is just really gross. You should wear my hammer hat. You know, which, to be fair, I had bought for him. So the question of whose hat it was is, you know, little, it's up for debate. It's up for debate. <laughs> and uh, and the great thing about this hat is when I walk through the African American community or any person from that community sees me walking down the street. They assume it's MC Hammer. <laughs> in in other circles, I mean, there are very few people who recognize it as the Hammer Museum, and in other circles, people just think I'm saying I'm the Hammer. You know, like sort of like <laughs> that, right? You know, like a sort when of. There like, are many people that right. when they think of you. They think of it's, it's the Hammer, the Hammer, yeah. yes. The, the evil hammer. hammer. The hammer. It's better to be the hammer than the nail. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, I have my collection of hats too. You know, it's funny. I have a a red, uh, actually Swiss Army hat that I bought at a Royal Robbins truck and travel store on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica in 2003. And worn that hat all over the world, um, you know, in all kinds of climates and conditions. Of course, the wear and tear on this thing. I mean, your son would have, you know, ripped it off my head and burned it, <laughs> but I still wear it with pride. Is this like a Swiss Army issue or the Swiss Army brand? Yeah, the Victronox brand. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And um, and in fact, I I wore it uh, I wore it uh, over the weekend uh, doing some work because it's you know it's just it's got that character i like the character of the wear and tear right the patina of uh of 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 the struggle so i have that hat when i'm when i don't really care what other people think and then i have a uh black uh secret walls uh hat uh that i wear are you familiar familiar with secret walls no okay so secret walls are an artist collective and I think originally they're out of the UK, but they have a Santa Monica presence now. But essentially what Secret Walls do is they essentially are a group of a collective, a group of visual artists, you know, maybe graffiti writers or illustrators, you know, painters, what have you. And they do um, live art competitions. Okay. So uh, they might do their own events. They can be hired for other people's events. And what happens is, you know, walls, temporary walls will be erected with big canvases, you know, uh, inserted. Uh, and then you'll have teams. You'll have a, you know, a team of uh, maybe it's, you know, three artists against each other, or maybe it's 
you know, three teams of two artists or three, you know, and so over the course of an hour, two hours or three hours, they create this piece of art and then the audience, you know, selects the winner by show of applause and they're, they're quite good quite fun and uh, they're called secret walls and so i have their hat now what was interesting about when i bought that hat they had a booth i've, I've hired them in the past for past events and they we you know designer con we produced um are you familiar with designer con yes okay so my company helped produce uh designer con in 2017 and 2018 no, 2016, 2017. And so Secret Walls were part of the uh, in- entertainment at the party. Anyway, so uh, at Decon, they had a booth. And so I go and check out the merch and they have hats. And so they have two styles. They have the uh, sort of classic, I guess they call it flip back kind of hat. This is almost like trucker style kind of kind of hat or like the, the skaters uh, the kind of style that the skaters uh, wear. And then they have the what I would call the baseball cap, which was the one that I was interested in. I said, I said, yeah, I'd like to look at that one. He goes, oh, the dad cap. And I said, excuse me. And he goes, yeah, called. we call it we call it the dad cap. Yeah, that's the techn- that's the real merchand merchandisable term. For and it. he was lucky in that moment that I'm actually a dad <laughs> because if because there's you know 50 50 chance I, I I would not be a dad. I would have been offended. Have Have you bought socks recently? Well, I tend. Or have you bought pants? Yeah, I mean, there's dad socks, dad's pants, okay, dad shirts. See. Well, dad. I guess there's mom jeans. Or mom yeah, jeans are coming back. Jeans. Well, actually, by the way, maybe mom jeans are responsible for dad caps. Yeah, but, you, you raise yeah. a good point. Actually, yeah, you raise a good point. Yeah, you know, you're getting older when you've seen a fashion trend come back a second and right. third time with a sort of very slight yes change. And I'm yeah. now at that age because I remember the mom jeans before now they're back and i'm happy to report that mini skirts have been back for a couple of years now big fan of the mini skirt yeah i've always been a big fan of the mini skirt yeah, yeah. in chicago uh, i'm from chicago I mean, how and- can you wear a mini skirt in chicago except for like maybe one month out of the year no no what i'm getting at is springtime boy when spring spring you know uh, when spring springs <laughs> When spring has sprung, like whatever other other things spring and sprung, because you know the pretty gals yeah. suddenly start donning those uh, the springtime dresses and miniskirts. Well, and some more beautiful importantly, thing. the winter coats come off. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's start there, yeah, which have you know a, a certain camouflaging effect. Yeah, indeed, so, indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, so how the hell did you end up uh, advisor in chief at Deviant Art? Tell us that story. I had uh, left Paramount uh, after being there for 11 years. And what'd you do at Paramount? I was ultimately, I was general counsel, but I uh, started there as a, as the youngest lawyer, actually, they'd ever hired in their history. And uh, were they that desperate? Yeah. Or were you that good? No, they were that desperate because um, <laughs> the people running the studio at the time were all considerably younger than any of the lawyers who were there. So the team was Barry Diller, Michael Eisner, and Jeff Katzenberg, and you know, obviously a stellar group of executives, each of whom have gone forward to do, you know, bigger. And Never heard of things. those guys. I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, and so I was exactly the same age as Jeff, which made me only a few years, you know, younger than Michael Eisner, and and just a few years younger than Barry Diller, and and they sort of brought me in, and then another person subsequently, slightly older than me with the idea that we could communicate better and they were right. And so I, I advanced relatively quickly there, I would say much too rapidly. 
Um, oh, really? Yeah. Did you feel that at the time? Oh, yeah. Or in no, hindsight? No, okay. it, was, it was wackadoodle. It was crazy. It was absolutely insane. The pace of of both the studio and my work at the studio uh, was just out of control. And and sort of persisted for eleven years. It never it never waned. So ultimately, uh, I um, worked on a whole bunch of cool stuff. And and because I'd come from a music environment, they uh, put me in charge of music. So I was also the a lawyer dude, but I was also running the music department. Running the music department during a period when we had you know Top Gun, Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop. Flash dance. What what does a lawyer know about music? How did how did the lawyer end this up is, running the music department? Let's put it the other way. Yeah. If you're in the music business and you don't have a lawyer who knows about music, you're in big trouble. Ah, okay. Smart play. Good. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, music uh, for a variety of complex historical reasons that I won't bore you with is the most complex licensing environment for intellectual property. Uh, period. Bar none more complicated than patent licensing. It's just an incredibly evolved market. And the thing that makes it so complicated is, is that people traditionally in the music industry uh, have parsed out their rights into very, very, very fine slices, mm -hmm. super fine slices. So, you know, you can perform this on Tuesday, you can't perform it on Wednesday kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and for a variety of technical reasons, music, the way it was performed would permit that. So, you know, if you were Handel licensing one of your pieces, you could literally license it for Tuesday and not for Wednesday. Uh, and they'd have to send all the parts back to you, you know, by pony or whatever they used, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, there's a whole sort of odd tradition around the licensing of music that's quite different than book publishing and later on movies and television, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's, it's very, very complicated. So what we did at Paramount was we invented the modern film soundtrack, which was, which would be a soundtrack composed of tracks from all over the place. Um, and what then, was the first movie, the first soundtrack? Well, it's sort of hard to say first. Yeah. Okay. You say you invented it. So I'm just, I yeah, want to understand I would that. Say Flashdance was probably okay. the very beginning of it. Got it. But, you know, we followed very quickly with Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun and a whole bunch of other movies um, where, and we were for a while, the only place doing it, it mm -hmm. took an enormous amount of work to sure. get six different labels to allow their talent yeah. uh, to participate. Uh, there were all kinds of little legal in and outs. So, you know, like one of the things was that uh, top recording artists tended to have a clause in their agreements that would permit them to do a single song as a guest, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if they had enough clout, they would get that out from their exclusivity. Mm -hmm. We take advantage of that frequently. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a whole dance over getting one record company to allow another record company to release their talent and uh, and we played that dance quite well. And, and the greatest advantage we had was unlike most of the other studios, we didn't have an affiliated record company. So, so we were perfectly happy to let Universal release this one and, you know, Columbia could release another one. And, you know, we actually, you know, Geffen could release another one. We just really, I mean, we cared, but we didn't really care. And then the other great advantage we had was that our soundtracks were backing huge movies and, uh, the soundtracks were doing very, very, very well. I mean, extremely well. You know, I had a we had a number one hit off of one of our 
one of our sort of less popular movies with Eddie Murphy called Boomerang because we introduced boys to men. Uh, sure. And the first single was End of the Road. And End of the Road beat the Beatles and Elvis in terms of how long it stayed at number one on the Billboard charts. And I remember Brandon Tartikoff was the chairman briefly mm -hmm. at the studio uh, before he sadly passed away. And, yeah. and he only really lasted a, a little bit over a year. But Brandon was chairman at the time. And I remember sending him a note, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is really great. End of the Road, Boys to Men just beat out Elvis and the Beatles. And he wrote back a note on my note that said, Kind of too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Bittersweet. <laughs> we are the, we 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 have we have met the enemy and and he is us. <laughs> right. But I mean, the bottom line is is that Paramount had this little golden age, which clearly it's not in at the moment. And during that golden age, we really delivered to the music business. They really appreciated what we did. We produced the first video. In fact, I was in the room when it was being cut by one of our junior publicist people. But, uh, you know, they just say, oh, yeah, you want, you know, here's the trailer, you want to cut a video? Well, we don't care. You know, uh, we don't even know what a video is on this thing called MTV, you know, yeah. it sounds like kid stuff. So it was up where we belong from uh, Officer and a Gentleman and he cut this, he cut this video that consisted entirely of film clips, pretty much. And, uh, you know, so, here you are, you know, in the music business trying to produce videos for whatever amount of money you're spending. You're up against, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of on-screen value, you know, with, you know, Richard Gere and Deborah Winger, you know, sitting on each other's laps making out, uh, you know, who's going to win, right? <laughs> so, uh, but nobody had tried it before because uh, nobody had a song like that before or understood how that integrated with the popularity of, of music. Um, and so when we released that, it was huge. I mean, the song went number one. I mean, it was just massive. And subsequent, and we did it subsequently with Footloose uh, clips. And MTV had to change their rules completely because the music business said, wait a minute, this is completely unfair. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I can't have like, I can't spend that much money on a Cindy Lauper video to compete with, you know, a Footloose video that was shot, you know, in Technicolor with, you know, sure. uh, millions, of dollars, millions yeah. of dollars behind it and choreographers and God knows what else they spent. And, you know, and Kevin Bacon, you know, bearing his chest and taking his shirt off. I mean, come on, give me a break. <laughs> and so they passed a rule that said that videos promoting, you know, connected to a film in any way, uh, would have to predominantly feature the artist performing, mm. you know, and, uh, and we, like, you know, so fine. We worked with that, but, yeah. but, uh, but it was a very sort of, you know, rapid action sort of uh, period in music. Uh, and to have been part of that, I thought was very exciting. No, but okay. So you said Paramount was Robert Evans around at that point. Bob Evans was a former president of the yeah. studio at that yeah. point. He did have an office on the lot. Yeah. Doesn't he still have an office on the lot? <laughs> well, he, he probably will always have an office on the well, lot. Well, until, I mean, you know, Bob. I know now, he's quite quite old now. Very old now. Um, but uh, yes, Bob Evans was there. I have no comment. Okay. I did enjoy Boy Stays in the Picture. I'm sorry. I mean. Yeah, no, I just really, 
I, you know, represented the studio in its dealings right. with Bob Evans. So got it, got it, got I, it. I really probably shouldn't be talking about <laughs> Mr. Client, Evans. Client uh, could, could have, uh, yeah. could have been, uh, I, I can't tell you he would send me a Christmas present every year. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. You're a very thoughtful man. Well. So, okay. So, how the hell you go from Paramount or, or, to DeviantArt? Or, or maybe thought he thought it was necessary to send me a present. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hopefully it was a good one. Uh, no, actually, no, it was like a candle or something. Or, you know, be something sort of more, uh, more, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just sort of like could a, have done better. A, a small little tidbit. Yeah. <laughs> just sort of like, I'm thinking of you kind of gift. Right, 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 right. Some potpourri. Um, so DeviantArt, yeah. I'd left the studio and um, I was, uh, you know, had done a bunch of other things. and um, Such as what? What were you doing after Paramount? Well, I had a few sort of interesting representations of individuals, prominent individuals as a lawyer. Mm-hmm which I felt I needed to do to sort of fill out my legal experience since sure. I'd been sort of on the corporate side and company side. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see what it would like to be on the artist side. So I did a few of those. And mm-hmm. then and then I decided to do a startup. And uh, the startup was um, in the, you know, very early internet web-based B2B in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, Napster had just started. And I read this article uh, in the LA Times about this group of people who would meet at this pho restaurant downtown, Pho 87, which I recommend to everyone, uh, best pho restaurant in mm-hmm. LA. And uh, it's on Broadway, at the end of Chinatown. It's pho. I've always been saying pho. I guess I've been saying no, it no, wrong. No, it's not pho. And pho may not be completely accurate. It's more of pho. <laughs> Maybe more accurate. But, but we are talking about the delicious bowl of Vietnamese uh, soup. And neither of us are Vietnamese. That's right. Yes. So, you know, we have no fucking idea what we're talking about. <laughs> we just know we love right. some pho pho. I can not tell you pho, pho, pho 87 pho. Is, has many Vietnamese people there, and the people who run it are definitely Vietnamese. So, All right. That, that um, bodes well. <clears throat> so, at any rate, this group would meet there, and they were all from the music business. And, um, well, actually, they were not from the music business. They were all from the technology side and they were all young and they were all meeting to talk about how they were going to, the big word then was disintermediate. If you were being fancy, uh, the music business, in other words, how are we going to do Napster over and over and over again? Because the toys are just too cool. Yeah. Right. It wasn't about fucking up the business, uh, at all, even remotely. It was about innovation. It was about, yeah, look at this fun. Look at what I just did. I just sent someone a song. Can you believe it? Fucking wild. Yeah. <laughs> you know? New frontier. And so uh, I said, since I was doing a B2B in the music area and part of what I was doing was providing uh, data and forward information in the digital space to the music industry mm-hmm. uh, because nobody else was paying any attention. So you were a spy. No, nah, I wasn't a spy. <laughs> I said I should go to this thing and see what it's about. And yeah. So, other than one of the founders of it, uh, Jim Griffin, who had been with Geffen, and uh, and another wonderful man, John Paris, who had been uh, with um, uh, OMG, mm-hmm. uh, but not on the music side, on the tech side. Everyone else was unaffiliated and never been affiliated with the entertainment industry. Yeah, and they were really just all kids with their toys. And so you. You would go to, I, the, I went to the first one, it was every Sunday, and I, the first one I went to, after that I said, I should be here every single Sunday if I can be. Because, you know, they'd bring in, you know, the new laptop, or they'd bring in the new MP3 player, or they'd be talking about algorithms, or they'd be talking about all kinds of stuff that, you know, was completely cool and also totally alien sure. uh, to, you know, the traditional distribution 
of of entertainment content and they were completely focused on music they were you know by and large completely yeah. focused on music and i could be grown up in the room at the table you know which was useful and you know so i felt like i was contributing and you know had knowledge base that you know was helpful to them in some cases and at one of these things angelo satira who's the founder one of the founders of DJ shout Mark, out to angelo uh, was, um, you know, sitting at the table and he had been one of the very early people engaged in music on the internet with a company called a website called D music. And so, you know, he had been part of the culture of MP3s and all that kind of stuff. And, um, so he was there and he said, you know, I've just come off of this other thing and I've decided I'm going to start, uh, DeviantArt, an art site. Uh Oh, they're coming for you. The cops Ultimately, it catches up with you. Ultimately, using an alias like sourdough is suspicious. Well, convicted of a, of a, of a felony? No, never convicted. Well, that's good. Yeah. So, you know, Angelo's sitting there. He says he's thinking of starting an art site, and it's going to be a user-generated content environment where people are going to submit artworks. I looked at him across the table, and he's a you know, nice young guy. Uh, you know, he must have been all of 19 then. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I said, you know what? I think you're going to need some help. <laughs> you're going to need a good lawyer, pal. And um, and I'd been uh, before I you know got involved at the level of a Paramount. I'd gone to law school to become an art lawyer, and at the law school I went to, they said, "There's no such thing. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, you know, go study corporate law, or go study real estate, or." tax or something useful. was there intellectual property law at that time sure of course okay. yeah right of course right. Yeah, of course yeah but they had one class in copyright that was it right and i wasn't allowed to take that until my third year of law school which yeah. i did but yeah so you know i'm saying you know i was going to be an art lawyer i kind of got to be a lawyer connected to an art form but maybe not so much helpful to artists and um, except in a sort of attenuated way, certainly not in a direct way. And, you know, these guys are doing art stuff for really the most, you know, basic level of artistic expression, you know, non-professional in many cases, uh, aspirational in many cases, uh, experimental for many people, even if it was in a traditional medium for them, it would be very experimental. Like I'm going to try pastels today and post it on DeviantArt, you know, um, you know, and uh, so, you know, doing a practice, I sort of thought was kind of like my wife's yoga instructors who, you know, no matter how fancy they were, and maybe they were doing yoga classes for Madonna, as part of their practice, they would uh, go teach at the Y for free. Sure. Right. Uh, because that was part of your practice. And so, you know, part of the practice of law, there's always a pro bono component to it. Yeah. Well, weren't you one of the founders of an organization that became Lawyers for the Arts? Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Yeah. Uh, it was first Bay Area Lawyers for the Arts. Got I it. wasn't a lawyer at the time. I was a, I was an artist yeah. in, in the Bay Area very briefly. And um, during that time, I helped co-found Bay Area Lawyers for the Arts. And were you uh, doing photography at that time? I was a conceptual artist. Conceptual please. artist. Oof. Please. Okay. Excuse me. Please. That's very yeah. high fluting stuff. Yeah. Oh, Eyebrow. Yeah. yeah. No, we're we're talking, you know, 
intellectual mastery. I, I, yeah. I barely understand what concept art is. So I won't even go there. It's not concept art. That's a completely different form of Ooh, art. Ooh, conceptual art. Conceptual art. It's yeah. very different. Okay. So, uh, but in any event, yeah. we don't want to get into that stuff. Uh, no, whole other podcast. Yeah, whole other podcast. And so, you know, as part of my pro bono practice, I did DeviantArt for many years. Mm-hmm. From day one, you know, Angela and I would meet, you know, three, four or five times a month, uh, frequently involved, you know, trips to the amusement park with my kids because he loved roller coasters. They make me puke. He was perfect. <laughs> it's <was laughs> a like, good, good substitute. Like, Here, take the six-year-old on the roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. I can say that I did my, my fatherly duty, but. It's a win-win. Know, it's, yeah. It was a win-win. Yeah. And then at some point I was in this big law firm. I was representing, you know, actually very challenging stuff, mm-hmm. but only for rich people who were going to get richer. Yeah. And I found the law firm environment to be really kind of soulless and uh, actually borderline upsetting to be in. And I'd never been in it before. And we had a board meeting for DeviantArt, which wasn't complicated. It'd be like four people and um, yeah. sometimes five. Uh, there were only two members of the board all the way up until the day we sold it a few years ago. That's amazing. Only two. Yeah. All those years. A big mistake probably, okay. but, that, but that's what it was. <laughs> As advisor in chief, you hit advised against that, I'm sure. Uh, I frequently advised that we should expand the board. Um, but overruled. Okay. As did the fabulous outside counsel that I provided and resourced for the company. Yes. He would frequently advise the same thing. As would the you know acting COO of DeviantArt. I mean, we would, <laughs> uh, but you know it was not to be. No. So, um, so you know it was, um, you know, in the end, DeviantArt was fabulous, and you know, so who cares? And hopefully, it'll continue to be fabulous once they find their sea legs with their new owner, but uh, which they're still in the process of doing. But you know, I think you know we had this board meeting. The company was doing better. I took a probably three quarter or more cut in salary uh, and asked Andrew if he thought it would be useful for me to be there on a day-to-day basis. And he said, sure, that'd be great. And so then I became involved in DeviantArt. And to be fair, you know, I spent a lot of time advising uh, on a management level, pretty much every division to the extent you can call them divisions in that kind of a loose structure. But you know, uh, with the with the exception of product, you know, the sort of product engineering and which is not my area at all, but, you know, helping set priorities, that kind of stuff. But and I, you know, and I did a lot of, you know, day to day engagement with all of the operations and maybe 10 percent of it required any kind of legal knowledge of any kind, which made the job even better mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. I mean, I really, it was really, it was terrific. I had a great time. You know, there, I was there for, I think, nine years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I, I've known about DeviantArt for a long time. In all candor, I had no real appreciation for the scale that it had achieved. Um, yeah, huge. Huge. Uh, if I read, you know, somewhere not too long ago, what, 45 million daily users or something like this. Well, it's just astounding. No, registered members. Yeah. Registered. I mean, yeah. you know. Even more astounding. I mean, it's now way over fifty million, right? And um, you know, at our peak, we'd have like two point eight billion monthly page views. You know, I mean, it, it, internet stuff gets hyperbole, you know, yeah, really, really quickly. Right. 
uh, the numbers aggregate and sound huge, and they are relatively quickly. But you know, we were a top one of the top fifty websites in the world by traffic. Yeah, and we then became one of the top one hundred and fifty. But you know, I mean, we slid because there were more websites. You know, sure. but in terms of social network behavior, I mean, we predated Facebook, we predated MySpace. All of them borrowed significantly from us. You know, DeviantArt was an open source type of environment, so you know, it didn't go out and patent everything and you know stop people from doing shit. You know, yeah, it was it was really open internet oriented. Yeah, maybe to its detriment financially, but but certainly that was part of the ethos, and I think a great deal of that had to, is why the community trusted the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they weren't being exploited, they weren't being mined constantly. Uh, with that, we'd had the ability to have the technology to mine them, but we didn't. Yeah. So you know, so we didn't do those kinds of things, and uh, and that develops trust, and that's important, and. And uh, trust is deeply important when you build community. I mean, it's absolutely critical. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, which is why Facebook is not a community. Nobody thinks of Facebook as a community. Oh, yeah. Hell no. And, uh, you know, maybe a, a big social network, but nobody thinks of it as a community. Instagram is not thought of as a community. No. I mean, to aggregate, I mean, you know, being an artist, being a designer, illustrator, what have you, generally a very lonely existence a very fragmented landscape in many ways. And um, DeviantArt seemed to, you know, balkanize or, you know, aggregate and kind of balkanize, you know, this community of artists that, you know, largely were probably, you know, people working alone with no community. Well, I don't, you know, I I think DeviantArt could have done a much better job of building its participation. So. Really? How so? I mean. Well, so DeviantArt did virtually no marketing. Okay. Right. Sure. So, um, so there are whole pockets of people in the arts who have not heard of DeviantArt. Sure. By way of example. Exactly. And DeviantArt really is a aggregation within a niche of hundreds, thousands of niches. Right. So, uh, what's great about DeviantArt is if you're doing something kind of nichey, you know, you're going to find other people on DeviantArt doing that, and you can pretty much create your environment on DeviantArt to be one in which you participate with those people, right? Um, and uh, and build a mini community within the gross community, right? Mm-hmm. And that really was one of the, we could have provided better tools for that, but whatever tools we did provide were apparently sufficient to create that dynamic. Yeah. So, you know, that was a core dynamic at DeviantArt. Well, for that to spread, you know, it'd be nice to have seen it spread a little bit further. You know, but one of the things about DeviantArt that was that's really spectacular is that until DeviantArt with the internet, I mean, the internet is obviously much more responsible for it than anything that DeviantArt built as tools, uh, the internet itself. Uh, but until that became available to culture, to the world, nobody had ever aggregated the types of people that we aggregated engaged in the arts. Nobody ever respected them. Nobody ever gave them locus. Nobody gave them anything, right? Yeah. So a woman, I mean, I, I was, I remember when I was at this big law firm, there was this woman in her 60s who was, you know, uh, had worked to, as an assistant in law firms for her entire career. And she just, she was part in part, part of a pool of people who would 
produce documents when you needed a document produced. So, you know, you just say, I need this document produced. Here's a draft. And then somebody would type it up and it got to her desk and she's typing the thing up and it says DeviantArt on it. And she comes to my office and she says, are you involved with DeviantArt? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, oh my God, that is just amazing. And are you really going to have a meeting here of DeviantArt? Is it really going to be like, Angelo is going to come here to the office? And I said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where's this going exactly? Yeah. And she said, would you allow me to meet him? Would you just let me meet him? Aw, kiss the ring. And she'd been on DeviantArt for years. It's amazing. Because she did like little drawings of wildflowers. And then she had her her granddaughter on DeviantArt and her niece on DeviantArt, you know, whatever. Wow, yeah. And and to her it was, and she was not like purple-haired, pink-haired, wackadoodle, thousands of bracelets, you know, 85 pendants around her neck, arty, arty lady. What are you trying you know, to say? She was none of those things. She was just, you know, regular old Joe, yeah, you know, yeah. who liked to make a certain type of art as an avocation yeah. and found a way to find other people to participate with in sure. doing that. Sure. The the ethos of teaching and helping and, you know, guiding on DeviantArt was just brilliant. Mm. And that, again, came from the community more than from the tools we provided. And, you know, all of that dynamic, right, had never been touched before, right? And so I view those as, I mean, my sign-off on DeviantArt is ripples in a pond to an unseen shore. Yeah. And I view almost every single interaction that was created by an environment like DeviantArt to have that effect. And I can't see that shore. You can't see that shore. We can't see those shores. Many, 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 many ponds, many, 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 many ripples, and all of them going to some shore someplace. What does that mean? What's the impact of that? What's the cultural value and give back of that? It's massive. And, um, and that's extraordinary. And this was a group of people, literally pre-internet, never before aggregated, could not find each other if they wanted to. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, maybe some sort of little local arts and crafts gathering at the you know civic center or you know in a mm-hmm. small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, two people who like to do wood cutting might meet up. Right. But not with, you know, 50,000 people who love to do wood cutting. And, you know, some of them are in Thailand and doing it Thai style. And some of them are in Ubikistan. And some of them are in San Francisco. And some of them are in Singapore. Right? Yeah. And they're all hanging out and sharing and exchanging together. I mean, it's just fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. Well, and and what's also kind of intriguing about all this is that Angelo is not necessarily an artist. I mean, he didn't, as I understand, I don't know, you know him, but like, as, as I heard the story, he came from a tech background with a focus on community building, but he wasn't necessarily an art. It wasn't like he was an artist saying, well, yeah. we need this. Well, saying he came from a background is, you know, yeah. When he was 15, he was fucking around on computers. <laughs> okay. Well, then how did he, but I mean, how did he think? When he was like, 15, he was yeah. fucking around on computers. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he joined BBSs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that sort of grew into D music. And, you know, let's see if we can share music. And right. you know, we won't go too deeply into that. Yeah. And then uh, all of the statute of limitations has expired. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, and then some of the people on that BBS said, hey, you know, we're sharing MP3 files. That's really cool. 
I don't know if you remember back then, but it was dial-up. Oh, yeah. And in dial-up, you you know had to segment the file and then reconstruct it, and yeah. you needed software on your computer that reconstructed the file. You needed that for Napster. You needed that for you know all kinds yeah. of stuff later on. So you know it was complicated. It wasn't easy. Yeah. And uh, and you had to be somewhat geeky to mm-hmm. do it, right? Or have a real desire like me mm-hmm. uh, to you know get into this at the ground floor. You know, and there weren't a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, compared to today, you know, everybody has a phone, you know, who were, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the people on his BBS said, you know, we write songs and shit, but, you know, a lot of us also would like to share art. We draw and could you, could you figure out a way to do that? Yeah. Oh, gee, I don't know. I'll ask somebody. I mean, how would you do that with a picture? And, you know, so that it renders as a picture and doesn't render as a you know, something that's in six pieces that you then have to re put yeah. together, you know, so that people can, we every, don't want jigsaw puzzles so that everybody mm. can see the picture and then comment on it. Oh, yeah. oh, that'd be really cool. And blah, 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 blah. The 50 by 50 pixel avatar was invented by, you know, that environment, uh, Angelo and his group, uh, to, you know, because 50 pixels was a lot, <laughs> you know, yeah. now it's the standard avatar size. Because it, yeah, and it's teeny, right? Yeah. I mean, how many times have you peered at a 50 50 pixel <laughs> avatar to try and get a look at somebody to identify them? And you're going, I'm not so sure I can figure out what this person looks like. <laughs> but it's persisted as yeah. a standard, right? Yeah. Well, it was created in an environment where 50 pixels by 50 pixels was a lot of real estate. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it was viewed as, wow, look at this. This is really great. Right, Um, breakthrough and you know and and so it was just this sort of tumbling tumbling dice kind of thing Mm. where you know this leads to this which leads to this which leads to this and he was right at the beginning of all those things leading to what they led to and followed them I mean you know to his credit uh, substantial credit you know he persisted like an entrepreneur persists Mm -hmm. which is with a great deal of madness and insanity mm-hmm. uh, and uh, contrary to a whole bunch of, you know, rational advice. Um, <laughs> and uh, because, you know, that's what's necessary, yes. you know, and unequivocally uh, there's a huge amount of luck involved yep. when it aggregates to the level of having become a DeviantArt, yeah. right? You know, he just happened to hit on us. You know, nobody knew there was this huge, pool underground i mean yeah. sort of like discovering black gold right um uh, you know like oil like the hugest oil reserve in the universe mm. i mean nobody knew that was there in the arts yeah. nobody could have predicted that and a whole bunch of what i refer to as the first world of art uh although DeviantArt has invaded it a little bit just because people of a certain age who were interested in the arts and were on the internet would know about DeviantArt and then matriculated into the first world of art. But to me, the first world of art is like the Hammer Museum, sure. the, you know, whatever, MoCA or, you know, the, the Louvre or, you know, the, or the Tate or whatever. Uh, although actually the Tate recognizes us. Of all the museums, the Tate is the most, uh, oh yeah, we know who you are. Uh, that should tell you something about the Tate. Um, Pompidou. Je ne sais quoi, <laughs> divien quoi, you know. You know, the first world of art still doesn't understand that there is this massive community of people who participate well, uh, in the arts in the way that they do. They, you know, they view them as customers or viewers or audience, 
Uh, they certainly don't. And not real artists. Not certainly not real artists. Um, you know, your monicum and um, uh, but but more importantly, they don't really they view them as other. They don't view them as as part. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's wrong. That's yep. I mean, that's just straight up wrong. Yep. And and I hope that um, sufficient people, I mean, you know, with the street art movement and a whole bunch of others, I mean, street art has become so popularized in part because you have the internet, which gives you the ability to then communicate the wall uh, outwardly. And in, in the early days of the street art community, I don't know if it's still true, um, you know, part of the cred was, you know, it's completely ephemeral. You know, I'm going to spray this wall. Some guy's going to come along tomorrow and spray it again. So I'm just going to take a picture and then I'm going to put it up on the internet. And that's all that it's for, right? Uh, but that would be sufficient, more than sufficient, uh, to pass that work on into the into the you know into into the overall contribution and cultural contribution of the artistic expression that it represented, right? Uh, it didn't have to persist on the wall. And a lot of that is because of the internet. Because in the past, yeah, you could have taken a picture of it. And where would that picture go? In your drawer, right? Where uh-huh. else could it go? No place else, yep. right? Yep. So, you know, th- I hope the first world of art, uh, ultimately, you know, I, I sort of think of it, think of the rest of the art world just sort of you know, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and the top layer melting, you know. But, you know, one of the strange things that really helped DeviantArt was that while we were aggregating visual art physically, in, in meaning images that are all protected by copyright, right, we weren't getting hit with the kind of lawsuits that people who were doing music were getting hit or people, you know, doing film or video were getting hit with uh, because they were – you know, because they were going up against the financial models of those businesses, right? And DeviantArt never has gone up against the financial model of the first world of art, right? We're not competing with Sotheby's, yeah. right? Uh, we're not competing with Gagosian, you know, trying to convince you that Richard Prince, you know, belongs on your wall and you should really pay $2.2 million for a blown up photograph off of Instagram that Richard Prince himself did not take and for which he's not paying royalties back to the original artist for. Yeah. Right. So, you know, even though they're a professional and they're one of the suicide girls, I mean, for heaven's sakes. Right. But that's that first world of art. We never touched it. We never threatened them. And they're the only people with the wherewithal to come down and whoop us upside the head in terms of visual art. Right. And with respect to other large populations of content owners, DeviantArt was, still is, a massive home for fan art expression. And fan art benefits all of those people, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's really hard, you know, to say, gee, I don't want a community that is completely in love with My Little Pony. Right. Right? Right. Exactly. They're not making money off of My Little Pony. Mm. They're not taking money away from Hasbro, even remotely. This is free marketing. Yeah, it's free marketing. And so every CMO, I mean, every once in a while we would get claims, but, you know, and every once in a while the claims were perfectly valid and every once in a while we would completely respect them. But by and large, the CMOs of the big properties, you know, they kind of smart, you know, otherwise they wouldn't be chief marketing officer for 
those big companies. Yeah. I, I don't want to embarrass them by mentioning them. I would have direct conversations with them. And I would say, this is the, the dynamic that's at work here. And they go, wow, I can't, I can't buy that anywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. there's no YouTube influencer. I well, can they buy. wish they wish they could create that for themselves. Yeah. yeah that kind of authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, right? right. So, um, so, you know, we were fortunate to, you know, DeviantArt remains fortunate uh, to slot into those areas. Well, that's luck that, you know, you actually end up creating a construct that does that. Right. I mean, Vimeo, YouTube, whacked with lawsuits i mean massive lawsuits yeah frequently their own fault yeah every single music service i mean i represented michael robertson in a number of cases he had mp3.com you know got sued every five seconds it's you know but deviantart the proudest piece of legal work i've done so far mm-hmm. i mean hopefully i've got more to come but as we know i'm very old I'm uh, five yeah um is that DeviantArt never in my entire 18 years with the company, never once got sued for copyright infringement. Not once. And we have, what, what did DeviantArt have on it? When I left DeviantArt, I think it had 450 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not luck. <laughs> You know, nobody gets that lucky. That's amazing. Wow, well, what a I mean, stat. Yeah, and, you know, and a lot of that was tactics, but, you know, and a lot of that was honest conversations with people and open conversations with people mm-hmm. and non-threatening behavior and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff and authenticity and, yeah. you know, and, and this wonderful group of people who would want to actually hurt these people, yeah. you know, because they're not out to hurt anyone else, right? Right. Genuinely, yeah. um, you know. Was there a lot of so-called art theft and people concerned about art theft on DeviantArt? Yeah. Mostly it was idea theft, which of course is not protected, but Mm -hmm. artists don't think in terms of the technicalities of the law. (laughs) (laughs) They're too emotional for that. Yeah. They they never have and never will, you know? (laughs) Um, But I mean, but it would be amusing to see these dialogues of, you know, I invented my little pony with the paw up in the air. And so-and-so did a My Little Pony with the paw up in the air. And so that's art theft. You go, mm, probably, well, let's hear, let's Why? hear, let's hear how this conversation <laughs> works its way through. And typically, I remember once I turned to Angelo in frustration, we'd done this wonderful integration with Shepard Ferry. And instead of, you know, people saying, wow, you've done this wonderful integration with Shepard Ferry, we were getting half of the people were saying, you know, oh, it was for marriage equality. So half of the people were saying, this is an abomination under God. (laughs) And the other half of the people, and sometimes both halves were the same people. The other half of the people (laughs) were saying, Shepard Ferry, he's an art theft thief. He's a thief. He steals everything from everyone. How dare you? You know, blah, 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 blah. He just stole the Obama poster. He stole everything. You know, and you're just sort of going, oh, please, you know, Lord. So, you know, it was like a Friday evening and I'm sitting in Angela's office and he and I are going through the traffic and trying to decide whether we should respond to this stuff or not. And 
how should we handle it? And yeah. is Shepard Ferry going to be really upset? <laughs> uh, what about the marriage equality people? Yeah. So, I mean, our first concern was the marriage equality people. You know, it's an abomination under. I mean, yeah, we're talking about a worldwide audience with people in Turkey who beat the fuck out of homosexuals, yeah. right? So, yeah. so uh, you know, you can't. You, we didn't like release it just in West Hollywood. <laughs> so. <laughs> And uh, it was one of the first and very likely one of the few, very few and p potentially should be the last time that DeviantArt took a political position. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. But, but you never took another stand but, again. Uh, yeah. uh, but, you know, there we were. And the marriage equality people were great. They said, oh, no, this is wonderful. We want them to say it's an abomination because that creates the dialogue. And that's the whole reason that we're here. And like, okay, great. So we take care of half of them. Okay. Shepard fairy thief stuff. It was like, well, Shepard doesn't really pay much attention to DeviantArt. So, oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, I'm looking at this stuff with Angelo and we're both in sort of crisis mode because the thing's blowing up in our faces. And I'm saying, and I get into a dialogue with somebody, I decide to respond to someone, right? And I get into this dialogue, and I think, Jesus, Angela, this is fucking crazy. It's like talking to a 14-year-old. And then it was just like, it was just like, you know. You are. It, no, it was just, not, exactly, it was just like, boom, boom, you are talking to a 14-year-old. <laughs> At which point, I said, this was early on in my involvement. You know, and I, and I, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and I went, yeah. yep, uh, right. I forgot that part. What is the median <laughs> age of a Deviant user? They're really, actually, the demos were really, really good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, very strong in 18 to 20. Yeah. Uh, very strong in, you know, 16 to, you know, 25. I mean, whatever those demo slices are, anything yeah. under 30, yeah. uh, super, super strong. Right, right, right. Uh, not so strong over 30. Well, uh, and we had an age gate, so yeah. um, you know we didn't go below thirteen. Unfortunately, Mr. Waddles, we uh, only have a few minutes left. I, um, I, I didn't. I, real, I didn't realize there was a timer. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I, no, I, the, the 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 authorities are going to come in any minute. Uh, you heard the cops earlier. Um, no, but I mean, obviously, DeviantArt is close to your heart. I mean, you've been there for you were there for so long, and you were so fundamental uh, in its development. But you know, they've sold to new ownership. How does that make you feel? And what do you want for DeviantArt moving forward? Where do, where would you like to see it five, 10 years from now? Well, DeviantArt was always, you know, hand to mouth, resource constrained. You know, you can be really, really big, but the bigger you get on the internet, the more you have to do. You know, scale does make a difference. And so, you know, the benefit of Wix.com, which is this huge company and, you know, a darling in the Israeli tech world, and they are you know, incredibly dedicated to the ethos of DeviantArt, um, uh, which actually I, they've sustained that dedication in the two years since they've had the company. And, and I, I find that very impressive. Uh, they're being incredibly patient with developing a new version of the site, which they're doing, uh, and they're rolling it out. So, you know, they seem completely committed to rebuilding DeviantArt. I mean, the traffic really suffered when there was direct competition to images and the and the use of images on DeviantArt. So the big hits came with Google Images, a really big hit. We sort of justified that hit by saying, yeah, but since they're, you know, in, since they're, 
they're bringing in every single image on DeviantArt into their platform for search, we get more traffic by reference. Uh, but the current iteration of Google Images is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The images are huge. You have no reason to ever go to the originating website. So, uh, you know, so Google Images was a big hit. And then, of course, Tumblr and Instagram, Pinterest, uh, you know, those three. Um, you know, you go on Pinterest, you do a search by DeviantArt, you're going to find 40% of the content comes off of DeviantArt uh, in the beginning even more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in a that's good and it's bad. It's like, you know, fire good, fire bad. Sure. You know? <laughs> yes. Um, and very likely more bad than good mm. when you aggregate those uh, those four Together, platforms, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Uh, so you have to fight against it. And we never had the resource to do that. We didn't, you know, uh, you know, we would do Comic-Con, for instance, where we're essentially preaching to ourselves. I mean, we had about an 80% penetration at, at Comic-Con in terms of recognition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, we didn't do other types of marketing activity that we could have done. Um, and, uh, and we should have gotten a lot more aggressive. Well, Wix has the competency to do that. You know, they have the marketing skill to do that. And, mm -hmm. and I'm, and I feel confident that once they have a product that they really endorse, uh, which they're working on, uh, that they'll be out there, you know, slogging it the way it needs to be. It needs that little extra oomph now, mm -hmm. uh, because you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't understand why, but essentially every photographer of any value is on Instagram. I mean, it's the absolute worst place to show a photograph. I mean, the image is teeny. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you pinch it, you know, to expand it, it pixelates like crazy because the, the value, the, mm -hmm. the tech is so bad. Um, and uh, and why would you want to show your work there? I mean, it just is completely unrepresentative. I mean, here you are using, you know, this beautiful equipment and beautiful digital tools to create this incredible digital image, and then you're putting it on the crap. It's like a 50 by 50 pixel avatar, <laughs> right? And and that's the dominant platform for photography sure. yeah. in the world yeah. is Instagram. For artists, artists. Generally. And artists as well. Yeah. I mean, crazy shit. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even go full frame on a phone, yeah. right? It doesn't even expand on a phone. No. I mean, it's it's crazy, right? So, you know, DeviantArt, I mean, you could put up a 40 meg file and it would display it. You could download it, whatever, right? So, uh, you know, they're marketing really helps <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully the uh this plays out to your uh to, you know in, in terms of your ideal because uh, certainly wix has deep pockets i mean it, it seems like you know there's huge opportunity for them to grow this yeah i mean if you're an artist i mean first of all they, they're developing uh, some products that are specific to artists sure. and, and uh, those products will be really good. I'm sure they'll be really good. And those will be pay products, obviously, yeah. I mean, because it's Wix. So, yeah. you know, they're not going to be a lot of pay product. I mean, in the sense of being expensive, sure. but most artists should have captive websites and they should be able to, you know, uh, fold, spindle and mutilate them. Uh, easily, <laughs> you know, without too much complexity. Yeah. Um, you know, they're artists, they're not technologists and they they shouldn't have to be able to write code. 
Uh, and Wix knows how to do that and has done that for all kinds of businesses. I mm. mean, you know, every single bed and breakfast probably uses Wix now, you know, it's, you know, cause they made a special product for bed and breakfast. So I'm sure when they put their minds to it and, yeah. you know, finish testing, whatever they're testing, uh, they'll come out with some artist centric product that, you know, is compatible with DeviantArt, but not, mm-hmm. you know, they'll hopefully you keep DeviantArt as its authenticity and its community intact and you build that community and its authenticity and then on the side you say hey would you like this or this or this you know uh and because we because wix will have built those built deviant art again um and will understand how it functions and how people use it in that sort of natural environment Mm -hmm. or more organic environment their commercial products will be much better than anybody else's yeah Uh, and i think that's a fair bet I think that's a fair bet. And, uh, you know, certainly we couldn't sustain DeviantArt the way we were going uh, without a partner uh, uh, or a purchaser in this case, uh, like a Wix. And we only had about two or three companies we could go to. And uh, and Wix was one of them. How aware do you, th- I mean, obviously being in a, in, in a negotiation, um, you want as much leverage as you can. Do you have a f- feeling that your need for a partner in, uh, impaired your ability to ne- negotiate? Well, you know, if we were going to be like a, an internet unicorn, you know, if we were going to be, you know, the top story in TechCrunch, um, you know, uh, we should have sold the company two to three years earlier. Ah, okay. And we could have sold it two or three years old, earlier to, you know, people less understanding and committed than Wix substantially less for a great deal more money if the object was money. But if that money wasn't going back to the community, then it was just money for, you know, those of us who were, you know, fortunate enough to have a little piece. Right. Uh, And, uh, you know, the way it turned out, not so much money, uh, but an enormous investment in the platform by a player with great resource. Yeah. Uh, much shared values yeah which which i think is you know you know maybe maybe on a business management level we our timing was off but maybe it just like many things at deviantart just sort of turned out to be the right thing yeah so what's next for josh waddles i don't know you were supposed to tell me that at the end of the podcast so (laughs) uh as you well know i mean you know know, we've now known each other for a few months yes i have no fucking idea what i'm doing so (laughs) Uh, <laughs> yeah, hanging out with me, that is proof you don't know what you're well, doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so no, I, I, I frankly, well, I, really I feel, I feel there's some art, uh, exhibitions in your future, uh, showcasing some of your photography. I'd, I'd maybe like to have a show that would that, be fun. That, 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 that would feels be fun. right. That feels like a good step. That'd be fun. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, there's probably a few more. I mean, I'm more. still, I'm still teaching, so, you know, I can do that. Uh, USC, yeah? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I can do more teaching maybe. What's that? So when are you teaching? You don't get like it's a, summertime. So were you starting in the fall or what's probably in the spring? Yeah. Okay. Uh, they typically slot me in, schedule me in the spring. Mm, yeah. Uh, for, I teach copyright law. Yeah. So now it's a good one for you. Copyright yeah, law. A, I, 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 I'm not entirely un. <laughs> you know <laughs> uninformed uh, in that area uh but uh and i enjoy it i mean that's you know it's, it's sort of my field 
Yeah, well, you uh, clearly are passionate for it, and um, and uh, you know any artist uh, that has had the opportunity to work with you, uh, you know, certainly it was better for it. Josh Waddles, thanks for sitting down today, chopping that, it up. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it here at Not Real Art. It was great. Come back, all right? Anytime. Got it. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Art Official. We appreciate the support. Sourdough out.